Over the last seven weeks, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians and we've come to the end this week. On reflection, we could have had another week, but nevertheless, we uh, we decided on eight weeks. The first half of Ephesians, we told you, didn't we, that it it talks about who we are in Christ, our, our, our identity in Christ. And the second half of Ephesians, chapters 3 to 6, is how we walk in Christ or how we live in Christ. So as we come to the end, we come to this little portion of God's word and in the NIV it has the heading, the armour of God. That's really a strange thing to have at the end of, of, of an epistle like this. But very appropriate. I've brought a friend today. Brought this friend. I haven't got many friends, but I've brought this friend. Yeah. Aussies have got soldiers that are called diggers. The Poms have got soldiers that are called Tommies. The Yanks, you know, I'm not a politically correct person, have you noticed? The Yanks, they got G.I. Joe. Alright. This is Giuseppe the Centurion. Alright. And he's going to help me. You might have, you might reckon he's been here before. He really has. A couple of years ago, I think the Sunday school did this portion of God's word and they used this little uh, prop to help us understand. I just thought it would be good to have give him another run. You know, a lot of work went into this. So I thought it would be good to use it again. The armour of God. Interesting topic. You know, sooner or later, every believer, and don't forget, Ephesians is written to believers. Every believer discovers that the Christian life is not paradise. It's not a playground. It's definitely not a walk in the park. Have you noticed this? I've noticed this. It's not like that at all. And you know, I don't know why we expect that. Because the Lord told us it would be a battlefield. The Christian life will be a battlefield. And we have here in Ephesians chapter 6 a description of it. On a battlefield, you are usually facing an enemy, correct? There's a lot of military stuff in this little bit of uh, scripture here and, and the analogy is about soldiers, it's about war, it's about battle. So we're facing an an enemy on the battlefield of life. And that enemy is powerful. In fact, that enemy is stronger than us. Much stronger than us. The Christian is in a war. Spiritual warfare, the Bible talks about. It's not imaginary. It really isn't. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you know It's not easy, as Steve said, it's not easy. It's not smiles every day, praise the Lord every day. It's not like that. 
If you're living a true Christian life, like we've been looking at it in Ephesians, it's a battle. It's tough. It's not theoretical or hypothetical, this battle. You know, it's a struggle every day. It's, there's real and present in everyday life and experience. Can you just, if you've got your Bible, I'd love you to have your Bible open to Ephesians, but just quickly go back to chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at at, now at work in these and those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And we talked about that, didn't we? That's what we were like. That's what we were like. We, it describes who we were and what we were. It described on what side we were on. Because in a battle, on the battlefield, there are two sides. And we were on that side that we've just read about, described. It says there we were obeying Satan. He was the commander and chief of that side. And then you get to verse 4. And like all those really tricky verses, it starts with a hard word, but. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It was by grace you have been saved. Praise the Lord for that. But. That but means very simply this. You changed sides. You were on that side. You were on Satan's side. He was the commander-in-chief. But you changed sides. There's no worse enemy than a traitor. Someone who knows you who knows your strengths and weaknesses, who was a friend maybe, a companion, a fellow soldier, switching sides. That's like Luke Hodge going up to... He's called a general, right? He's going going to be playing for Brisbane Lions. That's what it's like. But we've swapped sides, which also means... We have a new commander-in-chief. But, there's another but. But now we have a new enemy. Satan is the enemy. He is powerful. Make no mistake. He is not as powerful as God. But he's a lot more powerful than me and you and this church combined. So we have a new commander-in-chief in Jesus Christ and he gives us two commands 
It's the secret of being a good general or a good commander or a good leader. Keep it simple. You know, there's not a big, thick command manual to follow. Two commands. Here they are, verse 10. The new commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ, says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. That's the two things that the Apostle Paul is telling us we need to do. Very simple. That should be done. Let me just take a moment to talk about the enemy, the devil. It's important. Now, the enemy has a lot of different names. It's interesting how God has written the Bible for us. He's given us heaps of different titles for himself and his son, Jesus Christ, and they help us to understand who they are. It describes them, their character, their strengths, a particular facet. You know lots of them. They're very, very, very important. The Holy Spirit has, I think it's eight different titles, and each title describes his function. And it's the same with the devil. Satan has a number of names in the scriptures, number of titles, and it describes who he is and what he's like and what he does. He's called the devil, which means he's the accuser. He goes around and he says, you see, Raph, he didn't spend as much time as he should have on that sermon. He he sort of sat a bit too long at lunchtime and watched too much test cricket yesterday. (laughs) That's the sort of thing that Satan does. He accuses us before God. I didn't really... And then the name Satan, it means adversary. That just means he's the enemy of God and therefore the enemy of God's children, your enemy and mine. He's the tempter. Boy, do we know that. We've seen it. He tempted, he tempted Eve in the garden. And look at what happened. He tried to tempt Christ. In the wilderness, and he tempts you and me every day, many times a day. He's known as the murderer. He's known as a liar, the father of lies. That's an interesting title. Uh, and other phrases to, that describe him, he's known, he's described as a roaring lion in First Peter, looking to devour. Yeah, it's, a, it's a graphic picture, a roaring lion looking to devour. Of course, he's known as the serpent in Genesis and, interestingly, at the, in the last book, in Revelation. He's also known as the angel of light and the god of this age in Second Corinthians. And this is all very interesting, isn't it? Fascinating. So why am I telling you this? Because in warfare, in battle... One of the, the one of the most important things that you need is intelligence. And I don't mean brains, I mean like the intelligence core. Information about the enemy. You need that. Every army needs that. They invest a lot in gaining intelligence. That's how the CIA was born. 
in the Second World War to get information about the enemy. It's vital. It's a vital part in any warfare. You need to know and understand your enemy. That was the downfall in 9-11. The washout of all that was that the CIA had failed to gain the intelligence that they needed to warn them of those attacks. They picked up their game since then. And it's interesting, isn't it? They're being able to thwart many, many attacks, terrorist attacks, not just in America but in other places as well. The the intelligence of the enemy tells you who the enemy is and also who their allies might be. It tells you where they are, where they're positioned. Have they infiltrated us? And it tells you what they can do, their strengths, their strategies. It's difficult to defeat an enemy unless you have that sort of information. And as you know, I'm a bit of a World War II buff. Adolf Hitler was so desperate to find out as much as he could about Operation Overlord, which was the, 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 the Allied invasion into Normandy and, and into uh, occupied Europe. He was desperate to find out. Why? Because he couldn't protect all that coast. He needed to know where they were going to come and attack. He had to marshal his troops in a particular area so that he could drive them back into the sea. Otherwise, the war was lost for the Germans. And they did everything they could. One of the main things that, that made Normandy and the Allied landing successful was the success of the Allies keeping that information secret. It's one of the big things in World War II, keeping the Allied invasion of Europe a secret. They had tricked them into thinking they were going one place and somewhere else. God instructs us in his word about our enemy. We're not blind We're not ignorant. We know who he is. We know where he is. And we know how he he does stuff. We know his strategies. And that's why the Bible says, and it says even here, that right throughout the scriptures it tells us that he's not a mystery to us. In verse 11, what did it say there in verse 11? What's the little phrase he says? It says, you are not ignorant of the devil's schemes. We're not. We're not. We're not in the dark. Verse 12. Verse 12. What does it say there? It says there, For we struggle. We struggle. We do struggle. In our Christian walk, we struggle. It's a struggle for me every day. That word struggle is an interesting word in the King James, and this is what it literally means. They use the word wrestle, and that's what it means. It means wrestling. Now, we're not talking about, you know, the world championship wrestling, not that sort of wrestling. That's, that's, uh, that's theatre, isn't it? We're talking about more like the Olympic sort of wrestling. Have you ever watched that? You watch that. It's not pretty. It is, it's, it's, it's actually quite boring. But you can see the struggle. Those two opponents, 
They're struggling to get the other band pinned down or outside the circle. And you can see it. It is a struggle. It's not pretty. Not glorious. And that's why the scripture uses that word. That's what, that's what it can be some days. A struggle. But it's interesting, it tells us that we don't struggle against flesh and blood. That would be easy. We'd be, if we can see it, we can visualize it. I've got this little thing. If I know what the problem is, I, I, I can deal with it. Work my way around it, over it, under it. But if I don't know what the problem is, or I'm not sure of it, I don't know how to tackle it. That's what it means about the blood and flesh. You know, we're pretty smart. A lot of technology. We've advanced heaps. But yet we haven't mastered, have we, poverty. And we haven't mastered famine. And we haven't worked out how to not have conflict or crime or slavery. This is just an aside. It, 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 it shocked me, this. During, a couple of weeks ago, I read an article in, in a weekend newspaper. Have you ever heard of modern slavery? Modern slavery. I, I thought we'd done away with slavery. You know, we'll both... William Wilberforce and all. There are three hundred. There are thirty-five point eight million people in the world today who are slaves. Now we're not talking about the chain round the neck and collar sort of slavery. The UN nineteen fifty-six definition of of modern slavery is debt bondage, serfdom, forced marriage and the delivery of a child for the exploitation of that child. Three thirty eight and a half million people in slavery. Even with the flesh and blood thing, we're not doing too well. Now I'm not saying Christians should not be involved. We should. We, sh- we, sh- we these are real problems. We should be engaged as as a as a body of believers to try and alleviate some of these things, if not abolish them. So why haven't we? Why haven't we, as as a Christian society, been able to solve or eliminate crime, poverty, slavery, famine, conflict? And here's the answer. Verse 12, for we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If you have a look at that uh, sentence, the English teachers amongst us will tell you that's a bad sentence. If I had written that sentence... In, in HSC English, it would have come back with red line through this against, that against. Raph, you don't have to have all those against. That's bad, bad grammar. Just put a comma and leave that word out. But I'm so glad they didn't edit that out in the NIV or, in, or, or from the scriptures. Because what Paul's trying to tell us here, he's trying to show us something. We, ha- we are warring against the rulers. The rulers, the, the, the powers, the regional powers. 
who, who, who in the West, it's all about capitalism, materialism, powers that, that oppress countries with the occult and mysticism. We, we are up against the authorities that, that set the values for our society, the me first value. The, the value that tells us that, you know, we can euthanize now if we want. We can have same-sex marriages. We can kill unborn children. It's okay. It's fine. We're up against the powers of this dark and evil world and the commentators would tell you that's about the, the places in the world where the gospel hasn't got a hold yet. Not necessarily the West, but some of the other Eastern countries and regions of the world. And we, and we were up against the spiritual forces of evil. And that's the religious, the religious organizations and the religious groups around the world. Satan is indeed a powerful and terrible enemy. And the Christian, Paul says, is up against it. We're up against it. That's why we don't make a lot of progress. Satan is indeed powerful and terrible. If it were not for the provision of God that he's made for us, the warfare that we're engaged in, we'd be absolutely annihilated. We would. We'd be in serious trouble. But as we've been mentioning this morning, we are assured victory because we have a tremendous commander-in-chief who's already won the victory. You know, Eisenhower in World War II won the war against Germany on June 6, 1944. That's not when the war ended. That's when the victory was won. That's when there was a successful landing in Europe by the Allies. And you know what? Erwin Rommel, very good general, he knew... If the, if the Allies got a, beach, a beachhead and actually successfully landed, the war was lost. They kept fighting, but the war was lost. Victory was assured once those Allies had, had gained a foot in Europe. But God has given us a powerful resource as well. And that's why it says there, finally be strong in the Lord in his strength. It was mentioned this morning as well. We don't fight. We don't fight. In the battle, we don't fight. That's interesting. More about that in a minute. Because, the, and part of the resources that, that God has given us is the equipment necessary for the battle, the armour. The armour of God. Now, I'm glad Pauline's not here because I, I, I'm, I'm not good with this, am I? I had forgotten to... Uh, I can't even work it. Could you get it going for us? It should be up there. All right. The armour of God. Now, it's very special equipment. Very special equipment. It's for defence and offence. In other words, it's for protection and for attacking. But, you know, it's not just the armour... Thank you. It's not just the armour of God. Which one of these words? Oh, there we go. It's not just the armour of God because he gave it to us. You know, there's places in, in Isaiah that tells us that God himself put on a breastplate of righteousness. And God himself 
put on a helmet of salvation. And God himself had a belt of truth. That's interesting, isn't it? But that's not really the reason that uh, Paul used it. Paul was chained to one of these men, or someone like him. He was chained to a Roman centurion when he wrote this. It tells us that in, uh, in, chapter, in verse 20. And so Paul used the analogy of the soldier. And there's another reason too. Israel was an occupied land, occupied by the, the Roman Empire. So there would have been these blokes walking up and down the streets doing things and they would have seen these centurions. And they would have seen the shield, the sword, the breastplate, all that stuff. And Paul is using it as an analogy, as an object lesson, just like Giuseppe here is for us this morning. Brett, a couple of weeks ago, spoke on chapter 40. He talked about putting on and putting off different things, putting on off the old self, putting off falsehood and putting on the new self. And that was referring to Christian living, how we're to live with one another so we can be united and of one mind. And here Paul uses that term again, put on. Put on. It's used twice in verses 11 and 13. Put on the armour of God. No. It's put on the full armour of God. I've shared this with you before. I'm going to say it again because it's worth repeating. As a young believer, I had faithful men of God, brethren men, who taught me how to read read God's word, how to study it, how to apply it in my life. And something that they said really stuck. They said, Raph, you have to carefully read the word of God. What does that mean? You know, like this, close? No. Take note of every single word. It's not put on the armour of God. It's put on the full armour of God. Why? It's mentioned, it's mentioned as, uh, twice as well. There are six items on the armour of God. Six items. Unless you have all the items on, you're not fully protected. That is our problem. That's your problem. That's my problem. You know, some days we go out, we forget the shield. Ladies, if you're anything like my wife, the the days are you're not going to go out with the helmet because it wrecks the hair. I know I'm being silly, but you know what I'm saying? Some days we think, you know what, I don't really need the breastplate today. What does the Apostle say under the instruction of the Holy Spirit giving us the Word of God? Put on the full armour of God. Not some of it, not most of it, but all of it. If we're not fully protected, then we're exposed. We're exposed somewhere. Poor old Giuseppe at the moment, his, his head's exposed. And that means we're weak. It means that there's an unguarded place. And then remember, Brett talked about this as well in chapter 4, verse 27. That's where Satan gets a foothold. A foothold is all you need. That's what Erwin Rommel was trying to stop the Allies getting, a foothold. He failed, lost the war. 
by not putting on the full armor of God, you know what else you're doing? You're underestimating the enemy. You know, they're not very good. I don't think I need a shield. Won't bother with the sword today. You know what? It's a bit hot. Feet a bit hot. I won't wear my shoes. You're underestimating the enemy. And there are many losses throughout all of history where, where armies have been defeated by underestimating their enemies. There's another word that's important, the word stand. It's used in this passage three times, three times. Stand your guard, verse 13. That means to hold on to the gained ground. There's no point in gaining ground if you can't hold it, if they, the enemy comes back and pushes you back to where you were, pushes you back into the, into the sea. You read a lot about that in the, uh, the trench warfare in the First World War. You know, trenches, you know, overnight being changed over. Verse 11 uses the word stand, but it really should be withstand, which means to oppose, to resist. And in verse 14, it's used again, stand, and the idea there, the word there means to be steadfast, to remain, to abide, to be immovable, to be uncompromising. Chris was right. We don't have to fight. Just have to stand. How hard is that? Now, some very unkind people have said to me from time to time, Raph, you're obstinate. When I tell them about the Bible and about God, you're obstinate. That's not a nice word. You know what it means? It means to firmly or stubbornly adhere to one's purpose or opinion, etc., not yielding to argument or entreaty. I, I prefer to think of myself as dogmatic, which is a nicer word. It, and dogmatic means that you know, you're holding firm to a set of principles or doctrines. But Paul doesn't use the word Obstinate, nor does he use the word dogmatic. He says, just stand, Raph. Just stand firm. So I like to think of myself not as obstinate, I'm a stand up guy. Yeah? I'm just standing for the Lord, standing firm. And brothers and sisters, you and I know that's hard enough to do. So in verse 14, we actually have the armour starting to be described. There's a a little bit of a diagram about the the six items of armour. And it's interesting that the order that it's written here isn't the way you would dress in armour. That's what I'm told, I don't know. Because because it starts off with with this putting on of the armour and it starts off with something very unusual. It says there to start off with the belt of truth. Now, that's not the first thing you would normally put on. But why? Because Satan is a liar. The only way you can combat a lie is with the truth. With the truth. I know, sometimes the truth is not pretty. Sometimes it's very painful. But it's always the best thing. You know, see this belt? It's not very impressive, is it? 
There's nowhere near as impressive as the shield or the sword. You know, all the boys, they love the sword. Not as impressive as that. But you know what the, what the belt does? It holds the breastplate in place. That's why the breastplate should go on first. And it holds it in place so that it, in battle it's, it's around your body, protecting your back, protecting your, your front. And also that's where the sword is held in the, shield, uh, in the belt. It's a very important part of a soldier's equipment. And here the, the, the scriptures are telling us that, that the truth goes first. Knowing God's truth and living it out is what should be put on first. With this putting on, and that's what Ephesians talks about, putting on, putting off. When we put on the armour, the first thing we have to do is put on truth. What is truth? Have you heard that question before? Pilate. Remember Pilate? He said that to the Lord. What is truth? Philosophers from the from whenever, right up until today, are still saying, "Ah, oh, what's truth?" I've had people say to me, "Oh, you know, it's relative truth, Raph. Relative truth. What's that? It's either true or it's not." The Word of God defines truth for us. It personifies truth for us in Jesus Christ. John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That verse has got me into so much trouble. That's why people think I'm obstinate. There's no wriggle room there. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No, no wriggle room. And when you tell people about that, you're standing firm. And then the Lord himself, when he was here, he gave us a definition of truth as well. He, he defined it as, thy word is truth. The word of God is truth. Is it a contradiction? Uh-uh. The Lord, when he was here, he didn't speak anything but the word of God. That's in John chapter 17. In Christianity, truth comes first. You put that on first. Actions follow after that. Without the truth, we're no good. The breastplate of righteousness, verse 14. The breastplate is usually a very ornate uh, breastplate for, for uh, an officer, not necessarily a centurion, but an officer, a general, you know, a very ornate, you know, usually in precious metal. But it's usually made of, of metal and, and heavy leather. It protects the front and back, protects the vital organs. In a spiritual battle, it protects our heart, our emotions, our desires from attack. You know, a soldier without a breastplate can easily be immobilised. It's fatal to get, to get stabbed. If you think about today, getting shot in your torso. It could hit your heart, your lungs, your liver, your kidney, a major artery. You know, not good. We're to live an obedient life. We're, we're, and the breastplate of righteousness is given to us by, by the Lord himself. So when the accusers when Satan accuses us before God, the breastplate of righteousness gives us that, that credibility and the authority to do whatever we, we're doing through Christ. It's the new self. 
It's what we put on. It's the new self, the righteousness that we have. Even though Christ gave it to us, it's imputed, we also have to live it out. That's what Ephesians teaches us. So then we come to verse 15, the shoes of the gospel. You know, the Romans had hobnail boots. Uh, no, hobnail sandals. They didn't have boots, sorry. Sandals. Now, you think, oh, that's interesting. But it's important because Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar were the only two generals whose armies had hobnail boots. That tells you something. Now, they were able to get their armies to where they would need it in a very quick time. They had to walk everywhere in those days. They didn't have transport like B-52s and things like that, right? They had to walk, they had to march, carry all the stuff. And because they were well shod, they were able to get from place to place quickly, effectively. And in battle, they were able to stand their ground and fight. You know, in, in, in football... What do they say? If you, keep, if you don't keep your feet, you're out of the contest. In battle, it's even more critical. You don't keep your feet, you're dead. That's how important those, those hobnail boots were. And it helps us to stand, to withstand, to have a sure footing. And, and it, the, why they're called the, the, um, the shoes of the gospel of peace is because that's what they bring. They allow the gospel to keep gaining ground. The gospel is what gains ground. Then we just step up and we hold it. And it gains a bit more ground and we step up and we hold that ground. Well, we should. We seem to be losing a little bit lately, but nevertheless, that's what we should be doing. The shield of faith. This is the only thing wrong with this one. It's not the right size, not proportional. I can understand why Paul didn't make it. This is Paul Ryder who made this. He didn't make it because it would fall over. Because the shield... The Roman centurion shield was four foot or 1.2 metres by two feet or 0.6 of a metre. And it was made of heavy leather and wood and sometimes a a metal ring and they would interlock. You could lock one shield into the other. Have you seen pictures of the Roman soldiers all locked up with their shields and and they could walk right up to the enemy? And they would shoot the arrows, even the fire, and they'd throw the spears and they'd just bounce off. You know, the Romans used that to great effect and many other conquering nations used the same thing in those days. The Vikings were another one. They used their shields to great effect to march right up into the enemy, right up to the enemy. Um, anyway, we're getting a bit carried away there about the shield. What does that mean? The shield of faith, it means that you're not alone. You know the interlocking, you know, one shield, okay, you can hide behind. It's not very effective. When is the shield of faith effective? When we stand together. When we interlock those shields. It becomes a wall. And then you put them up here. And everything's protected. And we're not alone. A soldier's only good when he's in an army. On his own, he's vulnerable. So we, we, we live by faith. We rely on each other, but we rely on the promises of God. God has promised us many things in Scripture. The fiery darts that it talks about, what are they? They're the lies, the blasphemous thoughts, the, the hateful thoughts, the doubts, the sinful desires that, that Satan uses to discourage us. 
just say we're not worthy. I don't have a gift. I'm too busy. You know? All these things that, that come up in your mind and mine. The helmet of salvation. There we go. Protects the head. Put that on there. Protects the head. Is that right? There you go. Protects the head. From head injuries. You know, you you, you could get a a blow in the arm. You could still fight. You you might be able to still be able to shoot arrows and things if your leg's a bit crooked, you know. We've read, or I've read of many stories of soldiers being shot, even in the torso, and because they weren't shooting arrows, they were shooting guns, they were able to man the machine guns or keep the enemy at bay while they were wounded. But a head injury, it immobilises you. You can have a perfectly healthy body and suffer a concussion and you're out cold useless, can do nothing. The body doesn't function without the brain. We know that. The helmet of salvation protects us from mind issues, mind control. Who controls our thoughts? That's what it told us in chapter 4. Put on, put, in, uh, put on a new mind, take up a new attitude, the mind of Christ. Satan uses mind control to control our actions. And we need to guard our thought life. How often have you been told that? Where does it all start? Up here. Up here. You know, mental illness is a huge problem in society. The scripture tells us the way we think is how we are, how we live. And Satan is controlling our thoughts through media, social media, all sorts of things. It affects how we live and how we serve our commander-in-chief. And you notice that it's the last item that's put on that's defensive. Because the next thing we hear about is in verse 17, is the sword of the spirit. I have to rush on. The sword of the spirit. The Romans had a short sword. It was called a gladius. And it was for close in fighting. You couldn't, you know, poke like, you know, like that. You had to get in close. It was only about two foot, you know, two foot long at the maximum. It was sharp. It was two edged, which means it cut both ways. Doesn't matter which way you yielded, wielded that sword. It could do what it's supposed to do. Here's a little table for you. The material, like a real sword, a material sword, versus the, the spiritual sword. The material sword pierces the body, any part of the body. But the spiritual sword is designed to pierce the heart. The material sword grows dull with use, but it tells us in Hebrews that, that the more that the spiritual sword is used, the sharper it gets. Right? That's pretty good. The material sword needs the hand of the soldier to give it its real power. The spiritual sword has its own power. It's a living and powerful tool, it says in Hebrews 4. The material sword wounds to hurt and kill. The spiritual sword wounds to heal and to give life. The, spirit, the material sword brings fear and threat 
while the spiritual swords brings peace and comfort. And then it talks about, along with the word, it says that the spiritual sword, uh, which is the word of God. Now that's a different word. It, it's the Greek word rima. It's not, it's not the written word. The, the word rima means uh, to speak, to speak. A word spoken, uttered, a speech or a sentence. So the spirit, the, the, the belt of truth is really the, the, the written word, the truths of God's doctrines. But the spirit sword is the, is, is, is the, is the spoken word. And the best illustration of that is in Luke chapter 4, when the Lord was tempted by, by Satan himself. What did he, did the Lord have a sword? No. He did. He did. He had the spiritual sword. Three times he said, it is written. It is written. It is written is the sword. And he told, he told what, what the, what the, uh, what, what the scriptures said about the, the, the issues that uh, were at hand at the time between him and Satan. Memorization of God's word, brothers and sisters, it's vital. People think it's old fashioned. But you know the navigators associate, the navigators organization? They, they, they're built on memorizing God's word. Satan doesn't just flee, he retreats. When you speak God's word, there's a, a friend of mine who's going through a very, very tough time, very testing time in his family. And I've been speaking to him over the few months. And, you know, he takes great comfort in repeating to me verses of scripture that help him stand firm in his faith and in his situation that he has with his two children. The whole armour of God, what is it? Is it really a shield? It's not really. It's a picture of Christ. Do you realise that? The armour of God is a picture of Christ. Christ is the truth. He is our righteousness. He is our peace. His faithfulness, faithfulness makes our faith possible. He's our salvation. And he's the word of God. I've got verses for all those, but I haven't got time to read them. You know what we have to do? We have to put on Christ. Every day. Put on Christ. That is our protection. Let's not neglect to put on the whole armour of God daily. You know, King David was a brilliant soldier, a brilliant general, a brilliant leader on the battlefield. Absolutely brilliant. Won heaps of territory for the Lord. Kept at bay the enemy. And no doubt he, he would have had very impressive armour on the battlefield. You know, he would have had a you know, big shield and sword and nice breastplate. But we know that David sinned. He fell. And that sin was a mortal sin, wasn't it? He never recovered from that. Where did that happen? On the battlefield? No. In the palace. It happened in the palace. You know why? He didn't have his armour on. He didn't have his spiritual armour on. Saw Bathsheba. And you know the story. Every day, brothers and sisters, we need to put on Christ. Every single day, we need the protection of God's armour. Every single day. And not just some of it. The full armour. Never 
You're never out of Satan's reach. It's a daily battle. You know, Hitler fought to the bitter end in that battle. He knew he lost. He had the Russians on one side, the Allies on the other coming at him. They were bombing Germany every day. But he fought to the bitter end. That's what Satan's going to do. He's going to fight to the bitter end. He's going to take as many as he can with him. But we have victory. Our victory will be complete when our commander-in-chief sounds that final trumpet call and he comes to take us home. But until then, until then, it says here in verse 18, don't just put on the full armour and take the sword. It says, and pray. Now, I wish I had time to go into that. But it says there, listen to what it says, and to pray in the Spirit when? On all occasions, with all kinds of requests. So, brothers and sisters, put on the full armour of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Thank you.